Good morning and welcome back to The Word. My name is Mitchell Weber. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. Uh, It's good to have you uh, tuning in today. Uh, As you can probably hear and tell, still a little bit uh, under the weather. Uh, Hopefully you saw that post I put on uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram of the delay. Um, Super sorry about that, but uh, hey, sometimes you got to take a break get to feeling better um, so that we can go ahead and do this. Um, I was uh, definitely way too congested and it wouldn't have been, uh, it would have been conducive for anybody if I would have tried to record. So uh, thank you for being patient and uh, bearing with me with that. Um, I'll be sure to throw out a post, um, but like I said, this will be out um, today actually. So uh, thankfully, we were able to get it recorded and put out. But this is episode three. So we are moving right along. Episode one with Korah's story. Episode two, Psalm one. And today, we are in Psalm two. And I will say, uh, this one gave me a little bit more trouble uh, in terms of I had to spend a little more time with it and uh, really look at uh, what was what was going on, what the psalmist had written. Um, but uh, praise be to God that we uh, were able to get some good thoughts and ideas, good discussion points, and uh, hopefully we all uh, learn well from uh, today's talk. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and read, pray, and uh, we will dive right in. So Psalm chapter 2, this is the Word of God. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore... Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, we thank you for this uh, this beautiful morning, God, uh, we ask that uh, you are glorified in this time. Lord, I pray that you give me the words to speak. God, I pray that uh, if if I say anything or that is anything that is from me or my opinion, Father, that is contrary to your word or doesn't uh, align with your word, Father, I pray that it goes in one ear and out the other, Father. Father, I only pray that uh, only your word goes forth. Lord, would you just bless this time. Lord, we pray for those tuning in. We pray for those that uh, may not be tuning in. Lord, we just lift up uh, those who might be traveling. God, we just pray for safety 
to destinations. God, I pray that this is an uplifting time for us all, that we might learn from your word, learn about you, learn about how we are supposed to uh, potentially conduct our lives daily. Lord, we just lift up this world and the hurt that is in it. God, would you? we just pray that uh, you place your hand upon it. Lord, we love you. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, so chapter 2 of Psalms, verse 1. What do we have before us today? Like I said, this was uh, somewhat challenging, but I'm, I'm pretty excited to dive in here. So, so verse 1 of chapter 2, we have here, what do we have? We have here the very first word. I don't know if you caught this. This is something that uh, kind of took me a second. I had to read through this before a couple times before I caught it. The psalm says this. He says, why? He sets the tone. The psalmist sets the tone, and it almost seems in astonishment, if, uh, depending on how you read these questions, right? We're posed with two questions immediately, and this is the setting of the tone. Number, number one, the first question, why do the nations rage? And then number two, immediately after, why do the people plot a vain thing? That's, for, that's in verse one, right? So here's the tone. It's in astonishment. The psalmist is inquiring in astonishment. It is here that we see that it is not just uh, not just the mighty that sin against Christ, but it's all those. It is all those who would defy God. It's 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 an inclusive statement, pulling everyone together. Everyone that would defy God. We usually see separate interests of, we'll say, court and country, but. Here, in, in this particular scripture, it's, it's, they are found to be united, united against Christ. The psalmist is asking, in astonishment, why on earth are you doing this? So if remember, remember from chapter 1, right? We, we, we read and we learned about the differences in the morality, if we remember from uh, the first several verses of chapter 1, of the wicked and the righteous. We found a couple stark Con- some uh, stark contrast, excuse me, between those two. So then, right, who do they rage and plot against? Well, that leads us into verse 2, and we've already kind of hinted at it in verse 1. But it's against God and his anointed. That's in verse 2. Many are unwilling to be patient to God's authority. They are jealous, potentially, of his, of, I'm sorry, Christ's advancement. And mo- they more than likely despise the spirit of holiness. But look again in verse 2, because this, this is key. Look again at how they oppose. Through rage and plotting. Rage, number one, because their way of life is overturned by the word of God. They get so upset at the revelation of their sin that they would rather react with hate, fighting, and division. Okay, so this, I'm sure, uh, many of us in in our past uh, in our past, we, we probably look back on it, maybe with a little shame and like, ooh, I wish I didn't react like that. But I definitely remember as a child and even in my high school years and, you know, sometimes even in my college years, um, when, when I was just so living for the world, I didn't want anything to do with Christ, especially during my high school years, whenever things didn't go my way, whenever... The, the Word of God spoke against and revealed the sin of my life, I was more often than not ready to be full of rage. 
because my my own sinful self was being revealed. And, and that is the description the psalmist is giving here of those who would rather defy Christ. They, they respond in rage. They plot. They make plans to keep their sinful life uh, theirs. They want to keep it. But as the psalmist points out in verse 2, it's in vain, right? What does that word vain mean? It means empty. Romans 6, 20, uh, 6 23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. They pursue the very death they wish to avoid, but only set their way to death all the more so. They live as though they can defy death, that the way they're living is bringing the most pleasure without understanding that they are just setting their way unto death. They react this way against the Lord and his anointed, that quote-unquote his anointed being the Messiah. Christ. They meditate upon ways that seek to destroy or suppress progression of the kingdom by setting themselves to it, meaning that they make their purpose to do so. That is what they have set out to do with their lives. They say, you know what? No, I am going to live in in defiance of Christ and everything that is for it, I will seek to destroy. So what do we see following then in verse 3? This is how they are setting themselves to do so. And again, that statement, set themselves. They are setting their way to do that. So in verse 3, it reads this. We'll read verse 3 again. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So what do we see from this? There's a couple things that I think we see here. And number one that I think we need to touch on is that uh, the people that uh, we're talking about in this particular sense, in reference to, they're willing to undertake the things of the Lord that will make them prosper and rich, right? So if they can say the right things that boost their status, that boost their, the wealth that's coming in, whatever it might be, they, they, they key in on that because it's making them, it's making them rich, It's making them more popular. It's boosting their ego, their status. But as soon as the Word of God prevents them from indulging those appetites, the sinful appetites, right? Because the the way they're going about this is self-directed for self-glorification. Do they then really, do they instead seek to rage and plot against God and His anointed? So what, what what it's been talked about when we read the bands or bonds and cords, these are from... Christ. They are, they are this, excuse me. Think of the bands or the bonds as our conscience. In fact, this is, a, I think, a great moment to kind of segue to take a look at uh, natural law. And I, I can kind of let you guys, uh, it's, it's, that's a good thing to kind of look into yourselves. You kind of dive into the philosophical arena. But I think this is a great time to look at uh, natural law and what it means for Christians. I think this is important. For we are, in fact, talking about the law or the cords of commandments. But before we get ahead, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into natural law real quick. And it might be defined as this. Natural law might be defined as the basis of moral principles inherent to all humans. Romans 2 is Paul's letter discussing God's judgment. The Gentiles, in Romans 2 in this example, are described as not having the law, but rather having the working of the law. What Paul writes here is that every human being... They have the work of the law in them. 
that work of the law being man's conscience. That does not give way for the idea that the requirements of the, of the law, that, the, that those requirements can be fulfilled through men. This is justified through the account in Genesis, right, because of the fall of man. It's because of sin entering our lives, Adam and Eve choosing to disobey God, right, that we now cannot have the, the, the law fulfilled through us. We are fallible. So when sin entered the world, our conscience was clouded from Christ. Thus, the reason why there is such so much division and dissent from oneness in purpose in commonality in moral decisions, right? Because morality, it, it drastors, wow, it differs drastically, excuse me. Morality differs drastically from person to person, right? It, you can talk to anybody on the street and ask them that question about morals, and it's going to differ very much, very much so. So it differs drastically from person to person because our consciences are no longer conformed to the mind of Christ because of the fall, right, in Genesis. So then I think it is appropriate to look at James 1, uh, verses 22 to 25, and it might even be alluded to in uh, the Romans passage I just uh, mentioned, chapter 2 specifically in Romans, but justification isn't just found in hearing. It's not found in hearing only. You must be doers. The natural action of man then comes to fruition of law within himself because of the image he was created in, right? Because we are all created in the image of God. And that's also in the Genesis account. But it is violated by his own conscience, that is man's, man's own conscience, because of the disease of sin. So what then? The natural law within men births anguish over what should be done and morally right in wrong decisions. When we get in those tough predicaments, what should you do? What is considered right and wrong? What is considered in line with God? What isn't considered against God? So it's what men do with that anguish, with those issues that determines their willingness to listen to Christ. Because, because conscience is clouded by sin, it's far easier to, to succumb what is easier than to deny self. But often, what is harder, the harder road, the harder challenge, tends to produce character, right? I think this is a common example. Um, if, if any of you lift or if anybody have, if any of you have seen people who lift, you know, they don't just go to the gym one day out of the year. If their goal is to, let's say, build muscle, they don't go to the gym and work out on the bench press one day out of the entire year, and that's it. No, they, they have a schedule. There's a routine. Uh, they have to eat a certain way. You know, maybe they're cutting things out of their diet. Uh, maybe they're, you know, trying different lifts and working different muscles because they, they need to build something. And, you know, it comes to a point where, if, you know, you're just lifting the same weight all the time. You eventually get used to that weight, we'll say, and you don't build any more muscle. You just kind of plateau. So you have to increase the weight. You have to do what is more challenging, right? Okay, can kind of see where I'm going with this. It's what is harder that typically produces character. Nay, it does produce character. Adam Clark says this, I think this is a good quote, and I quote, God therefore will judge all nations according to the use and abuse they have made of this word, God's word, whether it was written in the heart or written on tab tablets or tables of stone. So men are without excuse to the knowledge of Christ 
and his word. Each person has within them the knowledge of what is just, honorable, pure, pure, charitable, and also the knowledge to forbid murder, theft, lying, and so on, right? How often do we do we do something and we know it's wrong and we get that immediate feeling afterwards like, oh my goodness, why did I do that? I should not have done that. It's a good question to ask. Paul says in Romans 2, 14 to 15, that they were and are a law unto themselves, meaning they had the prescribed knowledge, but failed to recognize where it comes from. And it comes from the Lord. But what would we rather do? We would rather find alternatives to immoral decisions than come face to face with the supreme judge of the world and humbly submit and repent of complete and utter ignorance of the defiling consequences of sin. And that is a little excerpt, I think, on natural law. (coughs) Excuse me. That I think uh, it's good to keep in mind. You know, there's debate out there whether or not natural law applies to Christianity. Should we even be talking about it? Well, it does have some room here. It's something good to uh, just keep in mind. Um, maybe read up on a little bit of it. Uh, there's some good articles out there uh, from some trusted sources. So it, it's just uh, it just helps you helps your mind get going. Uh, brings up some good questions and discussion points that you can have with others. So I definitely give that a look for sure. So why then, back to our discussion here in Psalm 2, why is that important? Those in defiance of God break under their own conscience, the bonds or the bands, the very fact that we are created in his image with knowledge of right and wrong and choose enmity with Christ or uh, uh, quarrels, if you will, with God. So why would, why would anybody want to choose the world of God. That's right. As we're kind of working through these things, why why would you want to choose to fight God, to choose the world over God? And I think we can uh, revisit uh, the fall when Satan questioned Eve. Did God really say, right? Did he really say not to eat of this tree? Right? So people ask, why should I give up this pleasurable thing? Is not my gratification more important? It's far easier to choose easy, but often the strenuous difficulties produce character. It is far, it's far easier, and I will say this, it's far easier to choose sin. It's, it's too easy to choose sin, but it is far more profitable to submit and subject, subject yourself to the word of God, to the commandments of of Christ. And in fact, that leads us into the cords then. Then, excuse me, what are they? They are God's commandments. They are to be tied to us to keep us from pursuing sin, right? Have you ever seen? <laughs> yeah, I laugh when I hear this. I mean, serious discussion, but have you ever seen like walking around in like a Kroger or Walmart and uh, those parents, they have, um, they got their little toddlers, you know, they just maybe discovered running or walking around. They've got them on those like animal leashes or whatever. And the toddler, he, uh, he or she just, they're strapped into this thing and they've got a certain length they can go before it starts retracting or retrieving back in. And they just go, go, go. And then they just stop dead stop because they run out of line. Um, it's somewhat of a humorous picture, but to kind of think of it in that sense, these, these commandments that are to be tied to us because they keep us from, Pursuing things we shouldn't be, like the toddler in the store, like 
Maybe it stopped him just short from being run over by somebody else in a car that wasn't paying attention, right? They're to be tied to us, to keep us from pursuing sin. They should be, they should be making us pursue Christ. And this isn't legalism, but it's rather obedience because we understand that our good deeds do not grant us salvation. Only Jesus holds the gift of salvation. I can't do anything on my own to get to heaven. It is only through Christ. These cords tie us out from sin and to a duty, but it is here that they see the cords as mere restrictions from living a, we'll say, quote-unquote, fun life. Again, what do they say they do? They break the bonds. Your conscience is holding you back. Ignore it. Live for yourself. Live as though no rule applies to you. As if Breaking them and casting them away is an easy thing. The yoke of Christ is easy. Matthew 11, uh, verse 29. And, and we'll go ahead. Let me flip to that, actually, real quick. Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, verse uh, 29. And it says this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what what is being said here? Well, I think of it in this example. It is far easier to pull a rope with somebody stronger than you, especially, than against someone who is far stronger than you, right? So think of it in a, in a game of tug of war. What side would you would you rather be on? What seems to make what makes more sense? I guess is one way you could put it. Would you rather stand on the opposite end of a rope with somebody that uh, is three hundred pounds of just pure muscle, and you know I'm a measly two hundred pounds? You know who do you think is going to win in that situation, right? So what's being said here? It's it's far better when 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 Christ says my yoke is easy. What he's saying is, take up obedience with me so that you are no longer quarreling against God, right? Because if, because if I'm not acting in obedience, if I am not in Christ, I am against him. And how do we think that will turn out? Who do you think will win that tug-of-war battle, right? It's definitely not going to be me. So then we reach... Verse 4, switching gears from looking at the wicked counsel to the place of the Most High. In verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Woe to you whom God laughs at, particularly in this context. And I say that because of the following words. He says this, hold in derision, speak to them in his wrath, and distress them in his deep displeasure. This is a... This is some hard language, right? I think, um, if I am not mistaken, this is only said, like this particular statement, God laughs, I think three other times, in, or two other times in all of Scripture, and they're all, they all happen to be in Psalm. Uh, we see it here in Psalm 2, I believe in Psalm 5, uh, 34, and Psalm 59. I could be mistaken on that. But they're all three times, it's not in a particularly positive uh context, right? Especially as we just saw here in our passage this morning. Hold in derision, speak to them in wrath, distress them in his deep displeasure. And guess what? He does this all while sitting. And oftentimes in scripture, we see God 
rise up. And that's uh, Isaiah 14, uh, 21, right? But here he, he stays seated to show it is absurd what they do and therefore laughs. He holds them in mockery, that is derision, and then speaks, them, speaks to them in his wrath as a word creates. As he speaks things, as he has spoken things into existence, a word from God destroys and distresses them in, dis- in his deep displeasure, causing sorrow and pain for the disapproval of their actions. And this is all between verses 4 and 5. So we get to verse 6, and he continues in verse 6 with this, yet, right? And how amazing is this verse? He says, yet, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The very thing the wicked set out uh, to do and to prevent, it's already been completed, right? If we remember back to the uh, first couple verses in chapter 2 where they the kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the, the rulers, they take counsel against the Lord and his anointed, saying, we're going to break this and that, and we're going to set out to prevent and destroy anything that uh, you say you're going to do. But the, the problem is, they don't realize that it's already happened. It's already done. It's already completed. It was done before the beginning of time. And this is so important. And this is why it is in vain what they do, why it is empty, without purpose, because it's already been completed, right? So then let, let us shift our focus to verse 7. We're introduced to a new character, which is Christ. And we see that especially from Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Paul actually quotes uh, Psalm 2 here as the Son being Jesus, We see that a decree that is to be declared, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a glorious affirmation of the divinity of Christ. So this decree, though, is a secret one between God to Christ, the Father speaking to the Son. What has been revealed to us is enough. For how can we know what we have not, what has never been revealed, nor will be revealed, isn't meant to be revealed? And it is here we must rejoice. And here I say and quote uh, from the late um, Charles, or early, I should say, not late, early Charles Spurgeon and uh, Matthew Henry, that we must rejoice in the mystery of Christ. And that is without attempting to violate the sanctity of it, right? This mystery, it's not something that's bad or is going to be, uh, you know, contradictory to the word, right? But it rather... It's things that we can't fully comprehend because we, as few humans, are incapable of knowing all that Christ knows, right? We can't know all of it. Our brains cannot handle it. And so thus we have a mystery of Christ. And that's not a bad thing. That's an okay thing. It's something that we can rejoice and be confident in. So now in verse 8, we see an interesting statement. And it is this, ask of me. So in verse 7, we've read and seen that the title of his kingdom is won by inheritance. Right? He says, you are my son, I have begotten you. One son. And now here in verse 8, we see that it is also a title by agreement. Christ must willingly and voluntarily undertake the position of mediator with the stipulation he will have universal power. And we see that in Isaiah 53 12. So number one, the son must ask. This is a voluntarily, voluntarily 
placement, voluntary, excuse me, voluntary placement of self, not being Christ, inferior to God, to sat to satisfy the virtue of his intercession, right? If you were meet if you were equal, he'd have nothing to ask. So that is why he says, Ask of me. Christ voluntarily went to the cross for our sins. And I'm kind of jumping ahead to the New Testament here, but I think it's important because this is a, a, a critical uh, thing to understand because this is how much God loves us. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, that whoever should believe in him shall have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. I might have paraphrased a little bit there. But this is important to understand that he voluntarily placed himself inferior to God. So number two, what will be given? The nations as an inheritance and earth (coughs) for possession, the earth for possession. There is nothing that is not Christ. And that's, that's interesting, right? Nothing. Everything. All of us. The entire earth. There's not a distinguish. Uh, nothing's distinguished here. It's saying, the. what does it say in verse 8? The nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That's fascinating. His government of all will be unhindered and will be victorious. He declares even his enemies are his inheritance, right? And that goes back to everything is Christ's. There's not one thing that is excluded. All is his. All is under his control. So in verse 9, we read, You shall break with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The nations in will in rebellion will be crushed, so much so it will be in irreparable pieces, gone, destroyed, unrecognizable. So again, in verse 10, for one final time, our, our focus shifts. The psalmist conveys instruction to its readers, particularly kings and judges, but it is applicable to us all. Those in power, especially political, but not just political, they have influence, right? They, they determine which way things go and laws that will be put in place. They have influence, but it is written now, saying, you need to be doing this, we need to be doing this now. Not, not later, but now. For the day of the Lord approaches swiftly. And in verse 11, this is the wise and proper response. To give law and judgment, you must receive law and judgment. And where you receive it matters. If it is from man, if it is from the world, chaos ensues. You should be receiving it from the Lord, from the word of God. So what do we read here as we come to a close in verses 11 and 12? Number one, we see that we are to serve the Lord with fear. Serve in all aspects, not hastily for self, but for Christ. Devote yourself in service to him. Right? Excuse me. And we're to, in number two, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice in God, not in the things of this earth. 
We must be careful not to rejoice in temporary carnal things so that we don't do so in vain and become arrogant. It, it's, it's interesting, right, how the human brain works sometimes. This might be more of my own theory or opinion, so do with it what you will. But I, I often wonder if we are to rejoice in things that are temporary, that are apart from God, I wonder if we become desensitized to them, to where we have to seek more of that particular thing. It maybe becomes an addiction because we're, that is where we find our joy and, and, and glory, if you will. And how desensitized does that make us? How, how much does that spill into our lives where we don't find enjoyment or rejoice in things that matter, things that are eternal? I don't know. That's, that, it's just something curious maybe to think about. But we need to be careful not to rejoice in vain and become arrogant in those things. And in verse 12, we read this, Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Do not bestow a kiss of betrayal. Do not attempt to serve two masters. Live for Christ. Be in adoration for the gift of salvation he offers to anyone who would repent and turn towards him. Away from the world. Turn away from the world. Turn towards Christ. Because when his wrath is but a little, it is absolutely enough to undo. That's an interesting word picture we get there in Psalm 2. The psalmist wants to make it very clear. Even the tiniest amount of God's wrath is enough to completely obliterate. We have and serve a just God. So then we end with this, and I think this is a beautiful promise. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. For those who believe on and in Christ, your refuge is in him, safe from his glorious and just wrath. Amen? So we have this thus far as we are coming to a close. In Psalm 1 and 2, if we kind of compare those two, Psalm 1 We had a contrast between the godly and the wicked. And here in Psalm 2, we see the disobedience of the ungodly and the exaltation of the Son, that is, Christ. Psalm 1, we see that the wicked are blown away like chaff. And in Psalm 2, the wicked are broken to pieces. In Psalm 1, the righteous are like a tree planted by the waters, the waters being the word of God. And in Psalm 2, we see that Christ is seen as the head of all. There is none greater. So, if we can kind of sum up Psalm 1 and 2 here. In Psalm 1, uh, in whole, if we can say something general here, it's the character and the lot of the righteous. And in Psalm 2, it's a messianic psalm, meaning it's about Christ, foretelling of Christ, things that have been set in place, things that have already been done since the beginning of time. And these two psalms are foundational. These two psalms are foundational really for the rest of this book and really for our understanding. As we move throughout our study here, as we bounce around to different topics and discussions. But I hope this time has been helpful for us all. I pray that we we learn and glean from what we have heard in Psalm 2 today. The, the stark contrast between the wicked 
and the Son of God. The purpose of the Son of God, what has already been set in place, what has been done, and what will be done, and what is to come. In the instruction that we are given there at the end in verses 10 through 12, something to keep on our hearts. We have learned about who Christ is, who the wicked are, what they pursue, and why their pursuit is in vain. And it should cause us all the more to seek to share this great word of God, the gift of salvation that Christ offers to all. For we all once were as the wicked were. We are sinful. We will never be perfect. But we have something that is great. We have salvation in Christ. And who would we be if we were to prevent others from hearing that? We cannot save others as mere humans. Only Christ can save. But what we can do is act in obedience and fulfill what God has called us to do. And we can go out and we can share the word of God We can be examples, we can be ambassadors for his kingdom while we are here as sojourners on this earth. We must be ready to give an answer in season and out of season. Because we are dealing with souls on a daily basis. So no matter your position at work, whatever line of work that you are in, you can be an example of Christ. To those, you can, to those you encounter. Especially those of us in the field of pharmacy, if I can speak to you all directly. Those that are on appy rotations right now, advanced pharmacy uh, experiences. We can be light to those patients we come into contact with. Even our co-workers, our, our preceptors, uh, fellow co-workers. We can be examples We can show them the great gift that Christ offers. We serve a just and loving God. Amen. I love you all. I hope this has been helpful. I apologize for uh, my stuffiness. Um, I know I stumbled. (coughs) Excuse me for the cost as well. I know I stumbled over my words a little bit here and there. Um, I need grace. Um, But uh, I hope that this was helpful. I pray that this ultimately drives all of us back to the Word of God to study it and read of it ourselves. Um, a couple points of uh, clarification, since I'm getting this so, so laid out in the week. Um, <coughs> excuse me. This will be posted. Uh, you will all be able to listen to this. I plan, uh, again, like 6 a.m. like usual. But uh, next Monday, uh, pull up the calendar real quick which is the 19th. I will not post since I'm posting this so late. Um, I want to make sure I have Apple time to uh, study. Um, I do have notes already for chapter three, but um, just want to make sure I spend uh, ample time with it. So the next episode will be the 26th, and hopefully we're back on a regular schedule of Mondays at 6 a.m. So I'll just be looking out for that. Uh, Just keep that in mind. But again, God bless you all. And uh, until next time, this has been The Word.